Um, okay, so I don't know if I didn't, I didn't realize we have a Mother's Day decoration. We went all out and spent big money on decorating for Mother's Day. So definitely, definitely something we purchased, not left over here from Brood. So uh, if you haven't gotten a Mother's Day balloon yet today, y'all can fight for it after. It's gonna be a raffle. It's gonna be, it's gonna be a raffle. <laughs> exactly. That's what we're all about. Bad Piper likes that jokes. Okay, um, so we're going to be in Philippians chapter one. So if you have a Bible, you can open there. If you have an app, you can pull it up. If you're following along on today's liturgy or need it, the QR code's over there. And if you didn't grab communion cup as you walked in, you can go grab one of those now. Um, and we will take communion together here in a little bit. As you turn to Philippians one or pull up Philippians one, though, um, I want to tell you about my friend Stephen Weeks. Uh, Stephen is a church planter, a pastor in inner city Philly. Uh, he went through our church planter training and, and, and had a heart for inner city Philadelphia with his family. And, and so he's about three, four years into planting a church in Philadelphia. Stephen is not from Philadelphia, though. He's a transplant from South Carolina. Um, and I, I know other people from South Carolina, perhaps you do too, but Stephen has like the richest Southern accent of anyone I've ever met from anywhere in the South. Um, and he's just the he's just the most joyful and smiley and faith filled man I've ever met in my life. And that is that, like that's that's who Stephen is. He's just he walks into a room and just the whole room lights up. Now, if you know Philadelphia, that's like 180 degrees different than the stereotype of Philly. Philly is cold. It's hard. It's aggressive. Um, a lot of folks in Stephen's church are coming out of and not, not fully out of yet, lifestyles of drugs. Several are still experiencing homelessness. Like Stephen is just a countercultural presence. His family is as well, but, but I know Stephen best, so I'm talking about Stephen. So the, the Weekses are just a countercultural presence in the midst of inner city Philly. And I bring up my friend Stephen uh, because last week, if you were here, we introduced Paul's line of thinking in Philippians 1. And, and saw that, that Jesus reshapes Paul's view of his circumstances. And if that's true, then, then the same can be true for us. Um, Jesus reshapes Paul's view of his own circumstances. And in doing so, uh, Jesus will reshape our view of our circumstances. And Stephen, in phone calls and in knowing him time and time again, has just been an example of that in a really hard situation and yet sees God's hand and purposes in his circumstances. Here's, here's one example. Late 2019, Stephen's crossing the street and gets hit by a car. He goes down, heads bloody, this kind of stuff. It's a whole scene. The driver gets out of her car and, and takes him to the hospital. Now, last week we talked about expected and unexpected outcomes. What is the one expected outcome of that car ride? Like, what's, what's happening? What's, what's the relationally expected outcome that's going on in that car? What do you think? Anger, panic. Anger, panic. Yeah. What else? Potential lawsuit. That's where my mind went. It's like potential lawsuit happening kind of stuff, right? Um, it, it's not, not a good scenario. But like Paul, in Christ, my friend Stephen saw an, an unlikely and unexpected outcome. And he said, again, like deep Southern accent kind of stuff, like way more Southern and happy than what I'm going to try to do for you. Um, he's like, ma'am, I believe that God had me get hit by your car so I could have a chance to tell you about Jesus Christ. And he did. And she did not come to know Jesus that day. Um, if I were her, I probably would have said yes to anything he said to try to avoid said, said lawsuit, but she did not come to know Jesus that day. Um, but that's beside the point. Just the, the point is that even in such a 
just just weird circumstance, Stephen saw a greater purpose, even in getting hit by a car. I don't think I would have seen that. What about you? Would you would you have seen that as an opportunity? Would that have been the conversation that you would have had with the person who ran you down? Um, whether by concussion or great faith, and, and maybe both, but definitely uh, great faith in my friend Stephen was like the Apostle Paul. Um, and so last week we said that, that this is the first half of Paul's thought. We saw, uh, if you weren't here, we saw Paul, you know, God use Paul's confinement to advance the gospel. We, thought, we saw God use Paul's suffering to instill confidence in others uh, in the gospel. And then we saw that even by selfish ambition, God, God used uh, even selfish folks to proclaim the gospel. So today we get the second half of Paul's thought. Uh, we find some of the most quoted verses in the New Testament, perhaps so often quoted that they get lost and we kind of just gloss over them and they lose their meaning. Uh, but, but here's what we're going to see is that in Christ, Paul shows us God's countercultural purpose for both life and death. Okay. We're going to see that God has a countercultural purpose for both life and death. I'm going to pray for us because I'm already distracted. I don't know if you are. And so I'm just going to pray, God, would you help us focus? Would you, uh, not even on my words, Lord, but on your word, would you cut through the distractions, cut through the literal noise uh, and also the, the, the proverbial noise that we all come and, and bring in today? And would you uh, bring us into your scriptures, uh, help us form us more into your likeness? Amen. All right, so again, this two-week theme, Jesus reshapes Paul's view of his circumstances. If, if last week we saw some specific circumstances, then you might say today kind of zooms out uh, to the general circumstances, maybe the, the greatest circumstances that all of us will at some point face, life and death. They, they, those are pretty big ones. Uh, we'll all be there. We are, we're, we're experiencing half of it now. We'll experience the other half of it at some point. Um, and I just want to make a couple notes for context before we read these verses, because they're really important. And, and this matters for, for your DNA discussions, if you all discuss these, uh, these verses in the coming weeks. The first contextual note we need to wrap our minds around is that prison, which is where Paul's writing from, prison is different in first century Rome than the way we picture it in 21st century America. Okay? Today, prison is a post-trial reality. Someone's been tried, they've been sentenced to something, and prison is the, the, the sentence. There, there's a, an offense, they've been put before a judge and jury, and, and they're sentenced to prison. In first century Rome, that was not the case. Prison was not a post-trial reality. Pr prison was a pre-trial reality. It, it would be today something like getting arrested and going to jail, but not being able to post bail. And so you just in the prison system, you're in the jail system, you're in some sort of holding pattern in the first century in Rome until one day you would kind of suddenly get plucked out of there for your trial. And you had no idea when that was going to happen. You were just waiting and waiting. You, you had no idea what was going to happen at your trial. But it was rare for, for, for offenders to be sent back to prison. That was not a sentence that was used very often. So prison was really just a holding ground until your trial. It was much more common that sentences would be things like a fine, you have to pay, you would be beaten, um, you would be in, enter into servanthood to someone, perhaps even slavery in, in, uh, underneath someone, or you'd be killed. Those were the more likely outcomes. It was really rare to be sent back into prison. In the first century, Paul was waiting in prison, not knowing when his trial was going to be there, not knowing what sentence he would face. And that impacts how we read Paul's words. It impacts how we read Paul's words. At least, at least it does for me. 
Paul had not already been tried, and he's just living out his sentence in prison. When, when he talks about death, which we'll see him talk about, he's not talking about maybe just dying by happenstance or perhaps a bad health in prison or perhaps getting freed instead of dying. That's, that's not where he's at. He hasn't been sentenced yet. Rather, he's in prison awaiting a trial where he might be sentenced to execution any moment of today or tomorrow or seven years from now. Like there's a heaviness, there's a weightiness that adds to Paul's words. So that's the first note. The reality of first century Roman prison changes how we read this. It adds some urgency to us. Paul is writing about death while death might literally happen to him any day. The second note is that Paul is emotional in these verses. If, if you read much of Paul, you know, like he logicizes through things and he goes into arguments and counter arguments and sub arguments and, and everything is very polished in most of Paul's letters and his language is very refined and, and it's very logical. Um, what we see in these verses is he's like wavering, going kind of back and forth between these two thoughts of life and death. Like even as he's writing or dictating these words, He'll start down a path of life, and then I'll go jump to death, and back and forth, and back and forth. And you, and you got to get this, because Paul believes in God. I don't think we have to debate that. Paul believes in God. Paul even shaped most of our theology today around concepts of sovereignty, God's control, and, and God's goodness. And yet, Paul also recognizes that we live in a broken world. And so he feels this wavering. He feels the, the kind of shifting waves of, do I want to die? Do I want to live? What's, he, he feels what's going on. He's able to grieve and be honest about the reality of death. And, and I just wanted to make that note before we read these verses, because I, I think that if we acknowledge that Paul was, was a human, that, that he's okay feeling pain and suffering and, and calling it what it is, even in the midst of shaping most of our theology around God's goodness and sovereignty, then, then that allows us to also feel pain and admit suffering and to grieve. And, and even to, to acknowledge the many layers that exist when we talk about death. Like it's not just this one or the other reality. Um, at the same time, Paul is going to help us see death, but also life through a better lens than any other story, any other worldview in his day or in ours. We're going to see life and we're going to see death through the lens of Jesus and through the lens of God's purposes. Okay? So it's a long introduction, um, intentionally long, because that context matters. So I'm going to read these verses, and I want you to listen in light of those realities. Paul's emotional as he ponders death. Feel the weight of a man who might be sentenced to die any day. And then we'll talk about what God shows you through these verses. So this is Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. I'm going to start at the beginning of verse 18. Some of your Bibles uh, divide verse 18 in half. But bridging from last week, Paul ended last week's paragraph thought by saying, What then? In my suffering, in my imprisonment, in my chains, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And he bridges immediately into this, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers, Philippian sisters and brothers, and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, my circumstances, will turn out for my, what does it say? For my deliverance. 
as it is my eager expectation and my hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Here's the famous verse, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. All right, let's pause. What, what sticks out to you? What does is, what is God teach you? Whether you read it coming into this week and dug into some commentaries, whether this is the first time you're hearing it, what themes or, or words or what was weighty. Yeah, what thoughts do you have as it relates to God's words through Paul in these verses? What sticks out? Deliverance seems like a weird word. Yeah, it does. Because when we think of deliverance, we think of, I'm going to be freed from prison. But that's not the only way he uses it. He says, whatever happens to me will result in my deliverance. So what's he saying there? Paul or anyone, what's he saying? If I live, I have confidence in Christ that I'll be delivered. If I die, that will also be a deliverance. That's not how we think of death, is it? What else? What sticks out to you? What do you notice in these verses? He's thinking about the outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, and he kind of plays each one out. If if A, then this could happen and that could happen. If B though, this could happen and that could happen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's not ignoring the fact that he could get called up and sentenced today. He's letting himself think on death, which is not something we like to do in our culture, is it? Anything else stand out to you? His biggest concern for himself is that he would be bold? Yeah. Yeah, and I'll reframe that a little bit. There's really not much concern for himself at all in this. We'll see that. He even talks about if I live, it's for your sake, the folks that he's writing to. Yeah. So, so let's take a, a, a step into this. We're going to talk separately about God's countercultural, countercultural purposes for life and then for death. But, but by either, this is what Paul brought out. Paul's saying, I may be delivered to life. And I may be delivered to death, but either way, I'll be delivered from prison. And he seems pretty okay with either. Um, he says that either way, Christ will be honored in my body. So if I, if I get to live, I want to honor Christ with my life. If my body is executed, then, then I want to honor Christ by my death. And then again, that, that verse that we could probably quote, to live is Christ and to die is gain, summarizes his kind of dual thought on this. He holds both really open-handedly. So, so let's talk about both separately. What does Paul show us in these verses? Read back through them real quick. What, what, what sticks out to you or what do you see him say about God's view of death? 
or, or how does Paul talk about death in these verses in a way that gives death true and deep purpose? What do you say? Yeah, if I, if I die, I depart to be with my Lord. He's face to face with Jesus. Good. What else? What do you see him say about death? Death is yeah, he says my desire is is for death. It's if I have to choose between the two, I'm, I might choose that. Again, totally countercultural from from how we think today, right? Anything else stand out? To die is gain. A worldly matter. My commentary is carnal. Carnal man loses everything. Hmm. And we gain everything. Yeah. I couldn't hear. She said the commentary said a carnal man, a worldly person, loses everything in death, whereas for those in Christ, we gain everything in death. Yeah, I think if, if I can summarize some of this, there, there's there's kind of two two things that Paul shows us about death here. Um, one is that for Paul, on, on one hand, in general, death matters. Like, again, he's willing to think about death. In, in Greek culture, where they separated body from soul, and they separated things of this, of this earth and things not, like, we, they just didn't think about death. It was, it was countercultural to say that death mattered. Uh, one author that I read this week said, death offends life. As we think about God's created order, we know that death was not existing in, in Genesis 1 and 2. Death, death is the result of sin and brokenness. Death was not God's original intention. And so death matters. It's right and good to think about death, to grieve death. It's important for us to be willing to call death brokenness. It is good and right for us to mourn and grieve death. In in a similar way that we saw last week, it's okay to call suffering, suffering. God will use suffering for his purposes, but it's still okay to call it suffering and, and to not like it. Suffering has a purpose, and suffering is hard. Death has a purpose, and death is broken. There's a tension throughout the scriptures, and it's a both-and rather than what we like to do and put it in its own box of either-or. It's either good or it's broken. God can either use it or it's sad. It's, It's much more of a tension. Many followers of Jesus feel like we have to jump. As soon as we see something sad, we feel like we have to jump to the like, oh, it's okay, God is good. And, and praise God, he is good. Again, we're not, we're not swinging the pendulum away from that. We, grieve, we don't grieve as those without hope, Paul will write in a different letter. But even in that verse, he commands us, we do grieve. We do grieve. There's been a lot of death this past year. Some of us, have, some of us on this patio have experienced close loved ones pass away. Uh, we had my family over for uh, Mother's Day yesterday, and in October, there's going to be three different memorial services in three different parts of the country for family members that we've lost during this past year, whether overtly of COVID or not. There's There's been a lot of death. Death in general matters. It's worth pondering. It's worth calling what it is. But on the other hand, Paul says that his own death doesn't matter. Death in general matters. Death as a concept, death of others should be mourned and grieved. Paul's own death, though, he says, it doesn't really matter to me. 
He says, I will rejoice. And yes, I will rejoice. The word in some of your Bibles may be celebrate. I will celebrate if God is glorified and if his purposes advance. He calls death gain. Like that's, that's a financial term. Death is of profit to Paul, which flies in the face of our common view, both then and now, where we think of death as inherently and only loss. It only puts us in the negative. Paul says, no, it's a profit. It's even worth celebrating. And so he tells the Philippians that even if he dies, he'll get to enter into this joy-filled, full-on presence of Jesus. Now, he didn't give us a lot of answers where, where we'd love to know what does that look like? Where is that exactly? How long? And what happens when we kept like, he didn't give us a lot of that. But we also know one day Jesus will return. But for Paul and for anyone in history in Christ, upon our death, we will immediately celebrate and we will immediately rejoice. Because death is not just the end of life on earth. Death for anyone in Christ is the beginning of life with our Lord and King from the moment we pass on. It's not just that life here is over, it's that that new life gets to begin. And Paul wants the Philippians further to see that if he dies, his death won't negate his message, his good news, his gospel. See, Jesus is worth dying for, he's saying. And more than that, even if Paul dies, who's not dead? Even if I die, Jesus is still alive. Is that our view of death? Bless you. Are we able, on one hand, to call death what it is and to grieve it in general, to grieve the concept, to, to, to call it broken and not God's intention for the world? At the same time, are we able to look forward to our own death? Culturally, it feels like sacrilegious even to ask that question. Can we look forward, like Paul does, to our own death and see it as a joyful reality? Not as an end of a relief from this life, but rather an entrance into the fullness of Jesus's presence. Death is good news as hard as that is to hear. So that's one side. That's God's purposes in death. The other side is, is perhaps easier for us to see. Of course, it's easier for us to think of life as being better and, and for finding God's purposes in life. But, but I think Paul also leads us into showing us, in God's view, how and why life is good. And maybe that's a little bit different than, than what we commonly define. Let's not miss how and why Paul says life is good. So again, look back at the verses. What do you see? What, what does Paul show us about God's view of life? How does he talk about life in a way that, that gives it true and deep purpose? What do you see? Look back. Anything? Verse 22, if you're going to be alive, that means there's fruitful labor. Good. What else? Yeah. 
Yeah, Paul said, if I live, it'll be to your benefit. And that's a really important view of life. Paul's desire to stay alive is 100% focused on serving God and serving others. It is 0% focused on himself. He's not just trying to preserve his life for himself. It is better, this is what Ben just said, it's better for the Philippians if Paul's alive. Not for himself, it's better for the Philippians if Paul's alive. His life would help further their advancement and their joy and their faith in Christ. The words to live is Christ mean that Paul is saying if he stays alive, he has more of an opportunity to be the hands and feet of Christ in the world that God is continuing to allow him to live in. That's what it means to to, to live as Christ. We get to be Christ in the sense of God's spirit working in us. Paul doesn't see his life for personal gain. He doesn't fear death. Again, there's 0% selfish motive, even private faith in Paul. Everything he does, he'll do publicly. Everything he'll, he does, he'll do for others. Essentially, you might summarize his view as saying that if, Paul, if, if God grants me life, I will give my life away. If God gives me life, I'll give it away. Which is maybe, in some senses, way more sacrificial than death. Right, moms on Mother's Day? Is it hard to consistently, every moment of every day, give your life away? Uh, there's this, there's this uh, line from the, the musical Hamilton where an older seasoned George Washington uh, is sitting with Alexander Hamilton, much younger, and says, and some of you are going to pick up the beat. I'm not going to rap it. I'm just going to say it. Um, says that I was just like you when I was younger, a head full of fantasies of dying like a martyr. And Hamilton says, yes. And then Washington drops this bomb, and he said, dying is easy, young man. Living is hard. And it's kind of this, this surprising moment in the show, but, it, but it's something similar to, to Paul's point here. Either way, Paul is saying, whether I live or die, my life is not mine. If I die, I will literally, literally give my life for Christ and others. And if I live, I will still give my whole life for Christ and others. I'll say that again because I think that's the invitation, and I think that's kind of the the crux of this passage. Paul's saying, either way, whether I live or die, my life is not mine. If I die, I will literally give my whole life for Christ and others. And if I live, I will still give my whole life. Christ and others. That's God's countercultural view of life and death. And and somehow in verse 25, Paul seems confident that God's going to grant him life. He's going to see the Philippians, but he believes that that's only true because God must have more mission and ministry and sacrifice and work for Paul during this life. Again, I just ask us, church, this is, the, this is the question to ponder. Is this our view of life? Is this our view of death? We broke these verses in half because there's some weighty questions that come out of this. This plus anything would be far too much for us to ponder over a given week or perhaps a given year. Even. Is this our view of life and death? If we can join Paul in saying yes, and also then, if life and death is the greatest circumstances we'll face, then we go back to last week's first half of the thought, 
God's viewpoint in life and death frees us to frame every lesser circumstance in our everyday lives through the lens of the bigger one. If life and death means we get to live for Christ, then a moment of suffering and a hard relationship and whatever else we face can also be lived for Christ. One author said this, if we accept these verses as reality, then our view of life and even society and even other people is not defined by our situations. So for example, it, it can be okay to admit we're in poor health. It can be okay to talk about suffering. And the, the author continues that we don't have to offer a crumb of false hope to people. Remember a year ago when COVID was just like the flu? Said the experts that had absolutely no basis for that? That, that, that was false hope. And yet people wanted to cling to anything that sounded good, no matter how true or false it was. We're freed from offering crumbs of false hope. Masks and vaccines might not be the savior. That could be a false hope. Rather, we're able to honestly talk about a greater comfort and a greater purpose in any situation we face. Because of God, it gives us purpose in life and death. He gives us greater hope than any other answer through our life. These are hard verses, are they not? They're countercultural, especially, and I want to be careful here, but especially because in our country and in our worldview, we overvalue our own life and death, and we undervalue the life and death of others as a common cultural norm. We overvalue and overprotect, perhaps, our own life and death, and we undervalue the life and death of others, whether individuals or populations. That's 100% the opposite of Paul's way of thinking here, of God's line of thinking here, which says, in general, death matters, but our own death doesn't. If we're willing to accept this as truth, this leads us into a right and reversed countercultural view of our life, that it's not for us, but for God and others. And it also leads us into this blissfully open-handed view of death, more than anything that any other worldview could offer. Jesus gives us good news for life and death. So one more note as we close. And that's to say that we've talked a lot about Paul in this text, but he's not a superhero. We can, we can often read through the Bible and see these folks as being like superhumans, otherworldly. There's no way we could be like them. Even, even in Paul's confidence that God would give him life, he's vacillating. He's not a superhero. He's not made of steel. Paul admits to the Philippians, I need help. He asks his friends to pray for him. He does this in almost every single letter. He's like, I need your support. I need your help. I need to know that I'm being prayed for. He says he's reliant on the Holy Spirit. He's reliant on something outside him. I say that to say that Paul is secondary and he's needy and he's just a mere human like me and you. He's a great example, but he's a subpar echo of the true hero in these verses, which is our Lord Jesus. Paul says that Jesus is his number one goal. 
again, just read back through. In life and death, I want to honor Jesus. I long to be with Jesus. He says, I want, I want the Philippians to glory in Jesus. Jesus alone is Paul's goal. And so Jesus alone must be our goal as well. But more than just being Paul's goal and ours, Jesus is also the fullness of everything Paul describes as it relates to life and death. Think about this with me. Paul's selflessness, his open-handedness in, rela- in, in relation to life and death is great and it's admirable, but it fades in comparison to Jesus' own selflessness and his own open-handedness in life and death. Does it not? In John 17, Jesus told his followers, I long to go be with the Father. Paul's echoing some of this in these verses when he says, I long to go be with Jesus. Jesus' life and Jesus' death fully, 100% glorified God and served others. Did it not? Way more than Paul's. Way more than yours or mine or anyone in history's life and death ever possibly could. Because here's the reality. Paul died one day. His legacy was one of a martyr, an example, and a teacher. But when Paul died, Paul stayed dead. Jesus died one day too. He had been unfairly sentenced at an illegal trial. He was executed though he was sinless. But through his sacrificial death, through his death, we have the greatest gain. Yes? Sin is cleansed, perfection is assured, restoration and, and, and eternal life and shalom, overarching peace is guaranteed to us. The words to die is gain is often used as like a rally cry for Christians. Let's go charge the hill, Let's, to die is gain, and rightly so. But the greatest gain or greatest profit in any death is not through your death, but through Jesus' death for you. God's plan was fulfilled. We gain God. That's the prophet in Jesus' death. His death was the greatest death in history, and his life is the greatest life in history. On one hand, more than Paul's life or any human's life before or since, Jesus lived a full, spirit-led, perfectly obedient, 100% connected to God the Father kind of life. His life is a better example of sacrifice and self-giving and public faith than even Paul's. But greater than that, Jesus' life is the first life in history that didn't stop at his death. Sure, he raised Lazarus, but guess what? Lazarus died again and stayed dead. But Jesus died and is also still alive. Right now, today, this Mother's Day afternoon, with a synth playing in the background, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father praying for you, interceding on your behalf. Right now, this Mother's Day afternoon in 2021, Texas, he is still living his life in and through us by the power of his spirit sent into us. Paul was dead one day. His hope was fulfilled. He's with Christ now, waiting for Jesus' kingdom to come in full. Similarly, we'll be dead one day. We'll get to go be with Jesus and wait for his kingdom to come in full. But Jesus Christ, our Lord, is not dead, church. He is alive. 
he's king now and his very life and mission and ministry and purpose continues by his spirit lived out in us and through us in our lives and so open your little communion cups here because this these truths are, are part of what we declare and part of what we remember in the bread and wine or today in the wafer and grape juice as bread or wine as wafers and juice enter into our body we can be reminded of god the spirit spiritually entering us sent by god the son to continue the work of god the father in our world today which we summarize as a church of making disciples of jesus by seeking his kingdom in everyday life and so in communion we declare jesus's death the greatest death in all of history and we declare jesus's life the greatest life in all of history both before and after his death in communion we're reminded of christ in us our only hope of glory and we're reminded that in his life and death in his sacrifice for us he gives us a renewed view of our life and death and our sacrifice for him this bread is jesus's body broken for you as his death provided the greatest gain in all of history take any this juice reminds us of jesus's blood shed for you as jesus gave his life fully for god and fully for us take and drink Can we pray for us as we commission us to live that truth in this week. Jesus, would you live your life through us? Spirit, would you lead us into truly being our vision? Would you be our vision? Would you lead us to God's view of our lives and deaths and the lives and deaths of those around us? Would you most importantly remind us of Jesus's own life and death? And Father, whether you choose to let us live or die this week or any day, would you use us for your countercultural purposes and your glory in our everyday lives this coming week and forever. We say together, amen.